0: You never knew that was his power. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Back now and here we go again. Spread the word, we the shorty tell a
1: friend. The game changed, but I'm here to break a ten. The boys play, but I'm here to make amends. Real talk, real talk. 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 Welcome back to the Relatively Speaking Podcast. I am your host, Jared Mintz, and I am recording on Monday, September 18th. This is a really special show today. Not only do we have a great guest lined up ready to join me in a minute, we have new theme music. I want to give a shout out to my boy Nick Zav for blessing me with the track. You can find Nick on SoundCloud. Also follow him on Twitter at Nick underscore Zav. Great work, great music, great dude. Excited to have a new theme and I'm really excited for this podcast. Today's guest is, in all seriousness, probably my favorite basketball writer out today. He's a senior NBA writer for ESPN and 538, as well as an adjunct lecturer at Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism. Before getting scooped up by ESPN, he was an absolute superstar as the Knicks beat writer for the Wall Street Journal, where somehow he lucked out and got to cover the best Knicks team New York City's seen since the mid-90s. Joining us today is Chris Herring. Chris, how was your NBA offseason?
0: It's been busy and I appreciate all the, the kind stuff you had to say. I don't know if I agree with all of it but I appreciate it. Um but it's been a busy off season and just, you know, me and a lot of my coworkers, colleagues, um it was never it never felt fully safe to take a vacation and uh you know, just not having a whole lot of time and then thinking when you know, when I was literally in the midst of booking vacation stuff uh, the Kyrie trade happened, uh, or, or the, the Kyrie news came out about him wanting a trade. And so even then, when it kind of felt safe, it wasn't totally safe. We were all expecting the Carmelo stuff to happen. And then, of course, the Kyrie stuff happened instead. So there hasn't been just a quiet two straight weeks yet, not completely quiet, uh, because then even the Kyrie stuff got dragged out even further with the delay and the snag that it hit. So it's been just a weird summer, but I think this is what the NBA is pushing toward now, to kind of lengthen this off season and kind of make it um, kind of a, a year-round thing, which I think fans probably love and love debating all the different storylines. But I think for us, it makes it a little bit tougher, a little bit more
1: busy. Definitely. I, I think you hit the nail on the head there, where this was a summer NBA fans live for. I mean, just constant big names moving around, trade rumors, endless speculation. I mean, the Mellow trade was at the two-yard line, I don't know, like two months ago, and he's still in New York. He's still a Nick. We'll get to Melo, we'll get to the Knicks, we'll get to the NBA shortly. Before we do that, Chris, every time I have a guest on the show, I like to introduce them to our listenership by doing five rapid-fire questions. You agreed before we got on air to do them. You still down? Yeah, let's do it. All right, first question's a little bit of a controversial one for you. Who's got the better pizza, New York or Chicago?
0: <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to answer Chicago, uh, and I know I'll take heat from that from uh, your listeners back home, but I, I, I mean, I, I can't remember who it was that said it. Was it John Stewart who basically said it was a casserole? It's not <laughs> really pizza. Uh, I mean, I'll, if, if you want to be that nuanced about it, then I'll, I'll agree with them that I think they're almost two different types of food. I mean, you can have New York pizza as greasy as it is, it, you know, it's, it's honestly a lot less filling than what you would have here i mean it's like a full meal if you have a slice or two of chicago style pizza um even if you have like the personal size ones you can only or normal, normally only have a couple slices of it before you're totally full so um you know if you're actually looking to be somewhat health conscious not that you would be if you're eating pizza i think that uh, that new york style is better but i think chicago style uh, is more filling you know and it You could have different stuff in it. I I think vegetables taste better in Chicago-style pizza because they're hidden a little bit more. You're not getting a big vegetable flavor the way you would if you're putting peppers and everything
1: else on your New York style. This is why I love you as a writer. You're already giving me nuanced takes about food. You're the analytics guy. You're the measurables, the efficiency guy. <laughs> and here you come talking about, well, it's a it fills you up more. You get more bang for your buck. It hides the vegetables. Uh, I, I love it, man. But this man. is a
0: rapid fire, and I'm sitting here answering <laughs> three-minute
1: answers with, uh, with, with questions about pizza and which one's better. So that's the problem. It's not efficient. <laughs> <enough>. <laughs> no, you're, you're great. All right, next question. Hopefully, this one's a little easier. What music argument or debate do you find yourself having the most often?
0: Uh maybe again because I'm from Chicago. Um, you know, my friends, the die-hard Kanye people think that his last couple albums have been his best ones, which I think is kind of ludicrous because I haven't really enjoyed them that much. Uh, you know, and so every time he has an anniversary come up, I would say that you know we're, we're debating which album of his is best and better versus the older honey, but I, I kind of have grown tired of, uh, you know, his antics and the Trump stuff, and yep. you know, the, you know he's kind of, he, he was initially someone that was kind of, we want to talk about nuance and, and all the different layers of what he was talking about before, and now, you know, to go from someone talking about how, um, you know, like slavery in his music and how we're kind of slaves to consumerism, and then the idea that he's out here selling ripped up t-shirts and jeans and, and you know, the shoes that I, I guess to some extent are totally his style but not really, and selling those for like hundreds and hundreds of dollars to a fan base, you know, that I'm sure a lot of people can't afford, it, but a lot of people probably can't either. And so I'm not a bigger fan of his, you know, his more recent albums nearly as much. Uh, the Life of Pablo is fine, but I, I you know, I a number of songs on that, but I couldn't stand Jesus for the most part. Um even a couple of songs that I thought had strong moments I, I thought were problematic. Um, so, you know, that's an argument that I have with people quite a bit is that I think um, college dropout was, was a lot better. And, mm-hmm. Uh, late registration, and, and a lot of his early stuff I thought was way stronger than, than what he's had the last
1: couple of years. Yeah, I, I find myself kind of on that side of the argument as well, although I, I really enjoyed Yeezus, surprisingly. Like, I still bump it to, you? I, you know, it's, it's not great, but I, I definitely enjoyed it. I also, I mean, uh, beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. Everybody thinks that's his best album. To me, it's maybe his fifth. It's good. To me, it's like his fifth. I like early Kanye the most. He was like the people's champion. He was a dude that we could support and kind of get behind where like new Kanye, like you said, when he started with the Trump stuff, he kind of lost me a lot. And that was was like a long leash because he was already on some crazy stuff leading into that. And then that was kind of the, the nail in the coffin for me with him as a person. But I still dig his music. I dig his style. I just... I am with you totally that you can't argue his recent stuff versus his old stuff. No way.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: We'll see what happens
0: with him. I mean, you really haven't heard much from him since a lot of that Trump stuff where he was mid-tour and then they just didn't cancel the latter end of his tour after that.
1: Yeah, I believe Um, so.
0: Where he did a show in Sacramento and walked off stage mid-show and then I I think he might have done one more and that might have been it. But uh, yeah, so hopefully he's good on the
1: mental scale, but uh, Music wise, it's been a little tougher to stand behind him fully. Agreed, agreed. Chris, historically speaking, what athlete would you pay the most money to watch live in person? Hmm, that's a good one. Uh... It could be somebody active, too. I mean, if it's obviously, you know, you get to watch enough LeBron that I can't imagine he'd register there, but across all sports, active, historical, who's your guy? You know what? I was watching a couple weeks ago, and, you know, I'd never watched it in full until a couple weeks ago.
0: The 30 for 30s, the Bo Jackson 30 for 30 was on, and he's somebody that was like just before my time, really, in terms of how old I was uh, and, you know, my ability to really watch sports and understand it as I'm watching it, as opposed to just kind of seeing it in the background. Uh, I'd probably say him because uh, I was a big fan of certain power hitters when I was watching baseball. So I watched that. I watched some football uh, and. I was a big fan of Frank Thomas and Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, Seems like Bo Jackson was kind of just before that and also uh, in a smaller market than those two cities. So obviously Frank Thomas being a Chicago guy, um, I heard more about him and saw him a lot more. But um, Because I was so into baseball and football, more so than
1: basketball uh, right at first, I probably would have been a huge Bo Jackson fan. I would have liked watching him play. His 30 for 30 was awesome. I think he's one of these athletes, you know, we've kind of gotten away from this in basketball so much with the way the game has changed, but Bo Jackson's one of these athletes that you're always looking for the next Bo Jackson. Who's got that combination of speed, skill, and power? And I remember a couple years ago, Yasiel Puig was coming up and everybody wanted to don him, the next Bo Jackson. He's just, he's one of a kind. He was so unique, Bo Jackson.
0: Yeah, I don't,
1: I don't,
0: I wouldn't even be able to, think of who would really be the the equivalent of that. I mean, you've had people that could play both sports or have played both sports. I mean, Deion Sanders was another one. But, I mean, the combination of both power and speed, you know, I, Deion didn't have to do the power side of it. He was a defensive player, right? Um, you know, a cornerback. And I, I kind of think in a lot of cases you have guys that are more like that or maybe have, you know, because of the strength of someone's arm, maybe someone that, um, you know, a corner infielder or something and, and a quarterback. And he had, Drew Henson was a guy that I watched a lot uh, because he was going to be at Michigan and, and played at Michigan and then went to the Yankees. But a lot of times, you know, you've got a guy that is way more um of an influencer on one sport than the other. And uh Bo is just kind of really ridiculous at both. Um, and so I, I don't think you're normally going to see guys like that. You know, that very, very small number of guys that do be
1: both like that. Certainly not. My favorite dual sport athlete was Kenny Lofton. Who, I mean, he played basketball at Arizona, and then the first time I saw him play basketball was at Rock and Jock. I don't know if you watched the Rock and Jocks when we were younger, but MTV? yeah, man, yeah. He, he used to ball. <laughs> he used to ball out at Rock and Jock. It made him my favorite baseball player that he was so good at basketball. But all right, let's move on, Chris. What is your hottest television or movie take that you have? Uh, well,
0: the the hottest movie take is one I've shared a couple times before i think that uh the lion king is extremely extremely overrated <laughs> as a movie um i you know i just i i think it's you know it's, it's a shakespearean film that instead of using people they use animals and i think once you kind of realize that um you know it's it's a good movie it's got very memorable songs very memorable characters Kuna matata is you know a phrase that everybody can kind of take from that movie and remember uh and you know, and and I think it is probably the best Broadway musical I've ever seen. I've seen it probably four or five times at this point. Uh, from literally five seconds in, you're like mesmerized by how unbelievable um, the stage is and right. the costumes are really ornate. But I can't, I can't really get behind it as a movie that is just you know like a great, great movie because it's like a plot that we've seen before. You know, if you if you followed basically any movie, you know, I think what is it like that movies tend to have like Any one of six arcs, and that's like a very, very common one where, um, you know, where jealousy comes into play, and then kind of like a fight over who's going to be the heir of something to the throne. And so, I I don't know, I I think it's extremely overrated once you get past the point that it's like it's animals instead of people, but it's creative, I'll give it that, but it's made a whole lot of money off of, you know. Granted, I didn't come up with the idea. I was like however old I was, six or seven when it came <laughs> out. But it uh, a seemingly pretty simple shift and dynamic from people to animals and you know all the money it's made and how successful it's been and kind of the enduring legacy that it's had.
1: Amazing. I was not expecting that. I was expecting something like The Wire is overrated or The Godfather is not that good. You went in on The Lion King. I'm going to make sure this gets out <laughs> to all the kids. Everybody's going to hear this and... <laughs> I don't know, man. I won't let ESPN or Disney find out. I'll try my best to make sure they don't hear that.
0: I already see this one. If enough people listen, I already see getting killed for this one. I always do. I think I've tweeted something along those lines out twice, and my tweet to, like, my reply to retweet slash favorite ratios (laughs) are always, like, 89 million to 2. They look a lot like some of the ones we've seen lately on all the stuff that's been happening with Jamel Hill and the public editor's response to Jamal Hill like I think he had 21 retweets and like a thousand responses so i'm sure it'll look like that if it gets out again.
1: Yeah, he had a bad ratio and i think he followed it up with like a 13-hour nap or something like that. But where i don't want to make <laughs> i don't want to ask you to talk about that stuff today, Chris. I'm not going to put you in the center of any controversy, but i think that we probably are on the same page with regards to that stuff. Last question i have for you before we get into the NBA, what do you miss the most about living in New York?
0: Um, uh, you know, honestly, I, I recommend the same activity to anyone, you know, I've had a couple of friends lately that had never really spent time out there and they're like, what should I do if I've got an afternoon or a day or two? I tell everybody go to the High Line in, in Chelsea. Um, you know, I, I, it's, I didn't, one of the things I didn't like about New York is that I felt like there were a lot of times I just couldn't hear myself think it's so busy. It's so loud. Um, I remember the first few weeks I lived in New York, I was staying in an NYU dorm uh, in Soho, uh, and I really liked the dorm. I really liked the people that I lived with, although they kind of wore on me over the 10 weeks I was there. Um, And I just remember not having ever felt that before. I I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, so I wasn't used to the constant, constant noise that I heard there and just couldn't relax. Uh, There was always something going on or too much going on. And so the High Line was kind of perfect because it was free, you know, in a city that's pretty expensive. Um, you know, you could look at the skyline. I'm a huge fan of architecture, and so you could see the skyline. Uh, it was an elevated walk path, and so they had plants up there, places you could sit and places you could just read and, um, you know, stuff you could buy if you wanted, stuff to drink. Uh, but I just liked being able to look. I, I always thought, like, if I wrote in a journal or if I wanted to read or if I wanted to, Um, just look at the street beneath me and how busy the rest of the world was underneath my feet that I could look at that and kind of take all that in from up higher um, without having to pay anything and I so it's kind of like a lot of my favorite things Chelsea is one of my favorite neighborhoods when I lived there and I a lot of cities have kind of emulated the High Line Uh, Chicago is one of them but it's not in the heart of the city the way that um, the way that the High Line is there in New York it's it's uh, kind of more off to itself, I think, out near Lincoln Park in Chicago. So I haven't experienced anything like that since I left. And so when I go back, uh, that's something that I normally try to do at least, you know, for one night is just go hang out over there at the High Line and stuff.
1: For sure, it's it's a breathtaking view. And I mean, anytime that you really get to see, you know, the just the the buildings from a distance, it's it's really unlike anything you could see anywhere else. I used to drive into Manhattan from Queens all the time, and you reach a certain point on the Long Island Expressway where everything is just crystal clear, and if you catch it at the right time of the day, it looks like somebody like shaded it in, like it's a sketching, and it's just like, (laughs) you know, it's it's one of those things when you're in New York, you take it for granted because you're just surrounded by a billion people and buildings, but when you really slow down, like the Ferris Bueller quote, you know, life moves so fast, slow down to enjoy it every now and then, it's one of those things, it's just, it's beautiful. Absolutely. All right, Chris, I brought you on the show to talk NBA, we're going to get into it, you ready? Sure. All right, so... Obviously, you know, we started talking about how this offseason was so crazy. I I think seven all-star level players were, were traded or signed elsewhere, moved to different teams. Still, this kind of wound up being the summer of Carmelo between Hoodie Mello, all the pickup basketball. Will he get traded? Won't he get traded? I mean, the Phil Jackson disaster presser that ended the season. Now we have more controversy with Mello that's kind of more media made. What was your first reaction when you saw that he was listed 64th on the ESPN ranking?
0: Well, I had reactions even before then uh, because they reached out to me in advance. You know, I ended up having to write um, the piece that kind of, you know, the corollary piece with that, where they basically said, um, We're going to have Zen NBA ranked. Carmelo is preliminarily ranking really low in this compared to where he's been in the past. Um, and you were the first name that came up you know, among the, the higher-ups um, in the NBA circles at ESPN as someone that could kind of sum up his game and where he is at this moment in his career, uh, would you be open to writing about it? And I assume that a lot of that was because I used to cover the Knicks. I used to write about Carmelo. on North game. Um, and so you know, I, I've written most of what I've done so far since I went over to the ESPN 538 side has been for 538. Um, you know, my contract allowed me to write for both sides. Um, but just because of when I was hired, I um, I basically didn't get a chance to really get to know my ESPN editors. That has been, has been for 538. So I've said I want to do more on the other side. And so, they, you know, this is an opportunity to do that. So I'm happy to write about it. At the same time, I already know immediately that people don't understand how the NBA rank thing works on the outside and that I am going to take a lot of the heat for whatever ranking he gets, because a lot of people are going to think that I'm the one responsible for having given him that ranking. So my first hunch as I was getting ready to write all this is that he actually wasn't even 64th. I think he was like 72nd or 73rd when the preliminary rankings came in and not everyone had voted. And so it was an even lower ranking. Honestly wait how did he finish that like that was my first question you know in, in my head like i'm happy to write the piece because i know i'm not the one that ranked him. i hadn't even ranked uh anyone at that point but i'm thinking to myself like this is just gonna be basically a, a shit show is what i was thinking is that people are not gonna understand why he's ranked this low and frankly like there's not even anything you guys know how you know how many numbers i use to generate my opinions and my thoughts on top of film work, on top of interviewing these guys, on top of everything. But I'm like, I almost guarantee you I can't find a set of numbers that would really allow me to make a strong argument that he's, that he should be ranked that low. I mean, any number, you know, composite number that you get that ranks in that low, I think probably has some sort of flaw involved. Um, or that the question isn't clear enough in terms of You know is it the value to his team is it perception is it um you know i think this just was asking like project how you think where he would rank next year and i think there are a lot of guys frankly that you know you look at them and i think one of the biggest flaws in it is really that rookies probably shouldn't be ranked in this and um as a matter of fact we had a an espn summit meeting this week with all the top NBA writers from ESPN in Bristol, you know, there are about 35 or 40 of us that were there. And that was kind of a big discussion that we had is like, should rookies be a part of this going forward? And, you know, uh, ESPN just hired these Draft Express guys to, to join ESPN. And, you know, we were kind of asking um, who was voting on all this and like, have these people really sat and watched these guys that just got into the NBA through the draft? And, you know, obviously the Draft Express guys have, but there are only two or three of them. And then everybody else is just kind of relying on, you know, maybe they watch some college, but mostly at that point you're watching NBA and then you're watching summer league. And so that's not really a fair, you know, a couple guys have enough background to be able to make that call. But why are we, you know, taking into account 60 new rookies that most of us haven't seen? I know I haven't seen most of these guys nearly enough to make that kind of call. And so that was one of the questions, um, you know, potentially explaining the methodology more was one of the questions so that fans understand it you know how these guys are being ranked and what criteria we're ranking them on um bobby marks was in the room and he said you know the the way that the question was phrased with this it it makes you wonder like are we ranking it just based on how the value that they have to their team currently or with someone like carmelo like if we're expecting him to be traded are we ranking it based on you know like what you know his ranking would probably differ with the knicks than it would for the rockets and that if we're going off that definition, I know my ranking would change on something like that as well. I would think he'd be a much better player with Houston than he would the Knicks this year. So there are like a lot of things that just like, it was such a base level question. Um, and the way it was handled, I'm sure you've probably seen at this point, but you're not really ranking anyone as much as you're just kind of picking a winner between like two player matchups. And so, um, you know, it's not confusing when you're doing it, but to the outside fan that doesn't know how that works and probably doesn't care to figure it out once they see the ranking and they're upset already or or pissed off. Uh, You know, it's just, it it was kind of a huge mess in that regard. And, um, you know, I had a couple people apologize to me after I was assigned it and then after the ranking came out and everything that I, you know, I had people calling for my firing. I had people, (laughs) you know, calling me out of my name and it it just like, it's pretty simple and it's not anything that I was too worried about. But yeah, like it, it, it kind of puts a lot of weird criticisms on us. Ian Begley was in the room too. And, you know, obviously he's someone that does a great job on the Knicks beat and, you know, has been trying to sit down with Mello one-on-one for weeks now. And obviously when something like this happens, like it doesn't improve the odds of getting someone uh, to sit down and speak with you. And so it's, it, it puts reporters that actually are covering teams specifically or trying to build relationships in a tough spot. And um, I think ESPN can understand some of that, but, I think when, you know, when me and Ian are kind of vocal about like, you know, just hoping that there's a better way to kind of delineate how this works so that individual reporters aren't taking heat, um, I think that would kind of improve the process. But it, I mean, it it gets people talking at a time where there is nothing happening in the NBA. So I get why a website would be interested in doing that. Um, and people, you know, if it is that kind of thing, people could easily just not take the bait. Carmelo got mad at being ranked number 15 last year, so he kind of knew this was coming. Um, Number 15 in the slam rankings last year, but, you know, people take the bait constantly, if that's what you'd want to call it. Um, And, you know, there's a whole other ranking system that's happening, too, and, uh, you know, there's a pretty clear common thread here where players that are aging tend to get um, knocked down on the list the farthest, and so it's it's something that's going to continue to happen as long as the rankings are there. But, uh, But I think there might be slightly better ways to explain it to the public and slightly better ways to avoid uh, reporters kind of getting, you know, these huge criticisms lobbed at them for something that they don't really have all that much to do with.
1: For sure. Chris, that's really great insight into the process and kind of how you guys go about this. Hopefully, everybody that was in your mentions will listen to this podcast and know that it's not your fault, and they'll stop asking you if, stop asking you if you're actually better than than Carmelo or if you've ever picked up a basketball. <laughs> I thought the most absurd thing was that this turned into let's rank the writers, which is just like bananas. That is such a terrible I idea. I Thought
0: it was funny. It was funny, like to me. And someone had a tweet there, like, you know, uh, if anything, the writers are going to love this because they're so self-important, Mike. <laughs> I literally before I even left uh left that day because the Carmelo thing was the rankings came out the day before our meeting started. Our our meeting started on Wednesday. The rankings came out on Tuesday where Mello was number sixty four. And by the end of the day Wednesday, uh I already saw people in the room like a couple hours into our meeting, saying like, Oh, look, like this is where I'm ranked <laughs> so, You know, like the writers were paying attention to that and like I don't know how important we find ourselves to be, but I think a lot of us got a kick out of that. It was pretty funny. But, um, you know, the one thing I will say is that people were, question. you know, people are basically saying ESPN is doing this to piss people off specifically. And, like, I can't speak to that. I'm pretty sure that's not why. Um, it, it's an interesting conversation starter. It does generate a lot of attention at a time where there's no other basketball happening in the States. But what I will say is that I I, I don't think it's done specifically to – manipulate certain rankings i don't think that carmelo actually finished like 45th and then they dropped him to 64. um tim mcmahon it was actually mentioned during the meeting that tim mcmahon uh had been asked to do something similar he's covered the teams in texas and the mavericks and actually utah a little bit last year too um and so he has a really good relationship with dirk he's you know written several things about chandler parsons and they asked him to write about dirk because in the preliminary rankings dirk finished outside the top 100 and then by the end of it, he actually finished 97th. And so they backed down and they were like, don't worry about writing it like it's too odd a number now. You know, before it was a nice round number like 100. That, that's interesting. But if he's just inside of that, then don't worry about it. So the rankings move as more people vote. And so, you know, I don't think that there's anything like nefarious at play here where, you know, they're manipulating the rankings so that they can say that Mellow finished right underneath Lonzo Paul. I, I think that's just the way they shook out. I think it's totally fair to ask if there's a better way to rank the players. I think it's totally fair to question who's ranking the players. Um, It wasn't until this week that I realized that there are actually people that don't work for ESPN that that make votes that maybe have written for True Hoop in the past. And and so, like, getting a grasp on who's voting. And even the NBA has kind of slimmed down, like, who's eligible to vote for certain things. Um, And, you know, there's always room to ask those questions. I don't know exactly how every single aspect of this stuff works, but, you know, I I think they – or at least open to hearing out fans. And we had a a pretty good conversation about some of that stuff um, during the meetings that we had this week.
1: I I appreciate you explaining it. And I honestly, I didn't think we were going to get into the detail that much because I didn't realize so much actually goes into the ranking. And I'd imagine most people don't. And that you would look at 64 as a number for somebody like Carmelo, who, as you mentioned, you know, the, the older players are the ones that wind up slipping. And we saw it happen with Kobe Bryant for a few years where, It was just, it had to be assumed that this is being done to get reactions, but at the same time, I mean, it was very evident Kobe's game was slipping. We get to Carmelo, and Carmelo didn't have his most efficient year last year. He hasn't played in the playoffs in four years. I mean, the Knicks are looking at, you know, we don't know what kind of value the Knicks could get back from Melo, especially if he's dead set on going to Houston, and it kind of feels like 64 is a little bit of a fair ranking. I guess my, my question to you is, why do you think Carmelo catches this much flack where it's so divisive that he winds up being ranked that low. And personally, like, how hard does he take something like this?
0: He takes it really hard. I mean, I, I heard from, from people that are tied to Melo. I know Ian did. Um, and I could, I could almost tell that Ian had heard from Melo's folks um, because I saw Ian tweet about it more than once over the course of the day where it's kind of like he was trying to distance himself from the rankings. But I don't blame him. Like, this is a guy that has to cover Melo day in, day out. And, you know, Melo's a person that is relevant even during the offseason. Um, so, you know, it makes sense that you would want to. You also want to stay on top of any trade stuff that's happening. And so being, uh, being amenable to dealing with this camp is important at a time like now. And so it's, it's really easy on the one hand to think about page views, you know, and the fact that you get people talking. And ESPN, you know, that is a part of their mission, obviously. Uh, it's not the biggest part of their mission, but it's part of it. And so on the one hand, like you have to be cognizant, of someone who's out to try to uncover what's happening with that player, whether it's in trade talks or anything else. And so he, he takes the, like, you know, he constantly says he doesn't read the stuff, but then it's like, well, if you're not reading stuff, how else would you, obviously people reach out to him as well, but like, how else would you know this sort of thing? Uh, how else would you get upset? I mean, if we want to talk about whether 64 is fair, last year, I thought number 15 and slam was incredibly fair. Probably, uh, you know, probably generous. If we're going to be honest, at that point in his career, um, and he, he thought that that was crazy—that he was fifteenth—and so, um, so I already, like I said, I already knew that he wasn't going to take that particularly well. I didn't think, that, you know I don't think I've ever seen Carmelo swear in a, you know, on in an Instagram or a tweet or an Instagram post or a tweet in response to something that the media was reporting or putting out or anything like that. So I didn't think he would take it that to that extent, um, or, you know, anything like that. Um, But, you know, who knows? Maybe it makes him hungrier. Um, He's a proud player. I mean, the guy's clearly going to be in the Hall of Fame. He's been an all-star 10 times. Um, He's averaging 25 a game for his career. You know, I I don't know. Maybe I would be angry, too. Uh, I I can't speak to it, you know, at that level. Um, I saw a lot of people, Howard Beck is one of my favorite writers in the league and a good friend, and I think him and David Aldridge both were, in response to C.J. McCollum's tweet, we're saying, like, why would people even care? You know, at this level, you get to the NBA and are, are, are an all-star, basically, a perennial all-star. Why would you care what reporters have to say? But, I mean, you get to that point, you're used to people talking about you pretty well. Uh, right? You're used to being, uh, you know, a, a gold medalist. You're used to being an all-star every year. I don't know. Like, I, I can't say that I wouldn't care, too. You know, I uh, I get to ESPN. I still care what people tweet to me or if I feel like they're out of the line or if I feel like they're not looking at the full picture of what I do or why I'm important. So I don't know. I, I, I guess I can definitely understand some elements of it. Uh, like I said, I wouldn't have voted him that low. Um, but we also don't list rank them like that in terms of uh, in terms of how it works. I was explaining that before. So, you know, I, 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 I get it on both sides. I understand how people feel that way. I understand why he's upset. but um, But it's also something that's clearly done, you know, in part because it gets a conversation going. And, you know, by not having a reaction, you almost – stem the conversation a little bit more than you would if you have a big reaction to it. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that's kind of, it, it's not fun for me to see the reactions to it. It's not fun today to see people arguing the Nikola Jokic stuff. Oh, you know, I, I just kind of wish it could just be, it could just be, but instead <laughs> it's always like a bigger conversation than it needs to be.
1: For sure, yeah. It's one of the things that just, it, it kills you if you spend too much time on Twitter. I mean, Jokic has been the hot button topic, which I guess is fine because it hasn't been Chris Paul, which is... Probably the most insufferable conversation that I see unfolding on Twitter, but no matter what, guys are going to be divisive, and Melo's one of the most divisive players. I care more about what's actually happening, though, which I imagine you do too. With that said, it's, it's middle of September, Carmelo is still a Nick. you know, the Knicks are looking to trade him potentially, Melo wants to go potentially. All of that said, I'm not asking you to break news or to cite any sources. Where do you see Carmelo Anthony playing the majority of his games this season?
0: I think that's totally dependent on whether he opens up his no trade beyond just Houston. I mean, I I actually think Portland I could see that happening, um, but I think that I think Portland wants Carmelo worse than Houston does. Actually, uh, I think they're looking for a way to shake things up. I think they've kind of seen that you know their their ceiling is probably somewhere around six, seven, eight in the West, um, and it's very clear that they kind of have. Um, too much on the shoulders of McCollum and Lillard. And so they would, I mean, I, I also didn't think it was necessarily a coincidence that McCollum was really the first person to go to bat for Mello publicly, where he, you know, he tweets out how ridiculous it is that Carmelo's ranking as well. I thought that was really interesting as well. And so, um, so looking at that, I mean, I could see him going there. I don't know that he would solve any real problems for them, but I don't know that anybody would, would make up that team and kind of, you know, they're they able to get rid of Alan Crab. Um, but they also seem to have like way too much money committed to someone like Evan Turner. So I could see him going there, but it would require Carmelo saying he's open to playing there. Um, then requesting that that team be added to his, his list of teams he'd go to Houston's there, but that's not, you know, that actually feels like it's outside of Houston and, and, um, New York's hands at this point, you know, it, it requires somebody to they didn't want to be that team. It would kind of defeat the purpose of trading Carmelo in the first place. Um, it requires a, another taker, someone that is willing to take $20 million a year on their cap. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I, I could see him playing in New York because if nothing gets done and Carmelo refuses to open up his list a little bit more, you don't really have that many options. And it, it just kind of points back to the question of why in the hell would you give him a no-trade clause at that point in his career? Um, you know, at that point, we want to talk about NBA ranks. He was maybe a top 15, 20, 25 guy. But I, I, I think you only have four guys in the league right now with no trade clauses in their contracts. <laughs> Steph just signed for the biggest deal in history, and he doesn't even have a no trade clause. So Carmelo definitely shouldn't have had one. Um, the Knicks really messed that up. I'll never quite understand why they were willing to give him that. I have some hunches as to why they might have, but um, but I, you know I don't know where he'll end up. I mean it, the idea if he gets into camp. Uh, You know, you would have to think that odds of him staying in New York for the season improve quite a bit uh, unless something really changes. Um, But it, you can tell by the the literature the Knicks have put out for season ticket holders and everything else that they have basically tried to turn the page on this. But you can't really do that um, until until he opens up his no trade clause a little bit more or until someone decides they're willing to swallow uh, Ryan Anderson's contract.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's just incredible to me that, that he hasn't opened up his mind more to other teams, other scenarios. As you mentioned, I don't know that he takes Portland over the top as much fun as it might be to play with Dame and C.J. McCollum. That is, if, if that's fun for him, if it's fun for him to share the spotlight, you know, scoring and sharing the ball, which you'd have to imagine he's open to if he's willing to go to Houston and be third option or the third primary ball handler for them. I just I don't understand any of it, but the more time goes by, the more it looks like he's going to wind up back with the Knicks. With that said, I mean, obviously, you know I cheer for the Knicks. I'm a New Yorker. I would love to see them be able to pull off a trade with Portland because it looks like they actually have assets, whereas if it's a Houston trade, it's who's that third team going to be that prevents the Knicks from having to take back Ryan Anderson. At least it looks good that the Knicks have kind of thrown that out the window. You know, I, I know I didn't have this on the rundown, do you think the Knicks front office is actually acting prudent with this Carmelo deal here? Uh, it's hard. It's hard to say because I. In,
0: it's prudent to try to move him in the first place. I mean, at this point, keeping him does nothing for you. I mean, the reason that I said what I said in my piece about him that went along with the rankings was that I, I think he's still a good player. I just think that he doesn't really fit anything about what the Knicks are doing at this point. At this point, I think you've seen enough from Porzingis to say he deserves a shot to be the number one option. It doesn't mean that he, you know, that the team becomes a playoff team with him as the number one option, especially with this roster of guys. Probably not, but you also, you know, I think it was great to have Carmelo there for a while because it kind of protected Porzingis from the sorts of matchups that he would see as a number one option. Um, now I don't necessarily think you need that. You know, I, I, I pointed out in the piece that I wrote that Porzingis actually shot the ball a little bit better without Mello or Rose on the court than he did with Melo there. And so, um, you know, it's prudent to try to deal him. but at this point, you know, you could be as prudent as you want to, but you can't really trade him anywhere unless Carmelo says he's open to it. So right. maybe it's massaging that a little bit more and trying to talk him into taking a deal elsewhere. Uh, you know, it, Realistically, Portland isn't going to be as good as Houston, but Portland will still probably be a playoff team, or at least very close to it. At least gives them a chance to contend for something, and you know, be involved in some sort of meaningful basketball. My thing, if I'm the Knicks, is that I I've got to find a way to get him out of New York because if I don't, Carmelo, you know, the, the same way that we said four or five years ago when he uh, that 2012-13 year where they won 54 games and all won the scoring crown sometimes it feels like he needs to have reason to kind of back down in terms of, you know, he's still the alpha dog that he is in terms of his scoring ability, but in terms of just facilitating the offense more and, you know, playing the game out a little bit more instead of just kind of, you know, jab stepping teams to death that year, they had two point guards and Jason Kidd was one of them to kind of, uh, to kind of prompt him to move the ball better within that offense. And, there's not motivation now to really do anything other than play for stats. You know, there was a triangle before that you had in place to try to get him to facilitate more and to try to move the ball more and, and you make use of the other options on the team more. But now without that in place, without um, a real veteran point guard that really has a reputation and a strong reputation. um, When you look at Carmelo and, and what he is at this point, um, I just think that there would be the potential there for him to kind of hijack, the offense at a time where you're trying to hand the reins over to Porzingis, where Carmelo still sees himself as the number one option. He likes Porzingis as a teammate. He likes Porzingis as a person, but still isn't really. You know, they're they're not in a position to win big right now. And so Carmelo will say, "Well, I might as well just play the way I've been playing. I know I'm still this player. I'm out to prove that I'm still this player that the media is saying I'm not." And so I just kind of worry that if you don't move him, that that's the mindset that he takes, and that it it becomes counterintuitive are counterproductive to what you're trying to do and so I, I mean yeah you could be prudent all day long but at this point the, the prudent thing to do would have been not giving him a no trade clause <laughs> right whatever it was three and a half four years ago so that you could have moved him without needing his okay to
1: do it yep ab- absolutely also funny you mentioned NBA players with no trade clauses Ron Baker is one of those guys Good old good, Is he really? Yeah, they gave, they, gave him, they gave him a player option and a no-trade clause. Ron Baker. Maybe not even an NBA player, but he's got both of those things that nobody else seems to have. Uh,
0: uh, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I honestly think that he might have been a worse deal than Hardaway, just on principle. I mean, it, someone said it, and I, I can't remember who. I wish I could credit who it was. The Knicks So the contracts were not ideal, him and Hardaway, but the bigger problem with it is that you're overpaying them by so much to where the very best they could do is play up to their contract, where you say, like, they earned this. The best teams in the league, with the exception of maybe Cleveland, they all have gotten where they were by saying that, like, you look at someone's contract and you're like, this guy outplayed the hell out of this contract. Uh, Obviously, Steph Curry is an example of that. Isaiah Thomas, you know, who's making $6 million this year. And next year, if he's healthy, he's going to want 30. These are guys that outplayed their contracts. Uh, You know, you look at most teams and and they have at least one guy where that's the case, if not more. Steph's contract allowed them to be able to go out and get someone like Kevin Durant. Um, The problem with the Knicks now is that you've got, you're going to have two, three, four guys on this roster who will be such bad value deals. Noah, obviously, probably at the top of that list. Carmelo a good way to know where he ranks on that spectrum is the fact that he's got, you know, about twenty eight million dollars that he'll be due in the last year of his contract. He could opt out before that, but obviously if he's not, you know, a top ten player, someone that feels like he can go out and get thirty a year, which he could, but I doubt anyone will give him that at this point, um, he'll probably opt into that contract because it's more beneficial for him and financially he knows that nobody would pay him that again. And so him, Hardaway, uh Baker All these guys, like, there's literally no way at this point that they could realistically outplay their contract. And so not only are they not going to be in position like an elite team would to be able to, you know, overperform because of that, because they've got so much space, you know, Jay Crowder and Isaiah Thomas and all these other guys that don't make the money that they should, uh, the Knicks are doing the exact opposite of that. And Hardaway is a great example of that. I think, you know, not to say that I'm totally wedded to everything that Secretary writes or puts out, or, you know, the the programs that we've got or the projections we have. But 538's projection system had Harley being worth $8 million a year for the next five years, and the Knicks are paying him basically twice that. And so you're just kind of – it's almost like you're um, – you have squeezed all the potential upside out of these guys' contracts or, you know, out of their potential production by giving them this much money because they possibly – outplay a deal where hardaway is making 16 17 a year um he, he if he's playing that well he's averaging 20 25 a game and at that point like yeah he's worth it but he I, I can't see him doing anything more than that uh whereas you know if he did that and was making five six million less a year then all of a sudden we can have a conversation about that maybe he's capable of doing that and and outplaying that contract but there's just no money left there you're paying him so much that at best, he would be doing what you hope someone making that kind of money would do. And Baker, with the, with the option and the the player option, he's kind of done the same thing there. If he's really, really good this year, guess what? He can opt out of this deal and go somewhere else, and that's not what you want to do. You want to lock these guys in if they overperform, not have them go off to the next team.
1: Right, yeah, you guys heard it here first. The Knicks front office, still not great Big big surprise, but I, I didn't want to do that. Chris, you've moved on to, to greener pastures. You've covered the league as a whole, not just the Knicks, and like I said when I was introducing you, you do such a great job doing it. Let's stop talking about speculation and stop talking about the garbage, irrelevant Knicks that I am just stuck with until the day I die. Let's actually talk about this exciting offseason that we've had, all of the player movement. I mean, we've seen Hall of Fame guys change teams. I don't know how much it's actually going to affect you know, the top of each conference, but that's what we're here for. That's what we're going to find out. So with that said, Chris, what do you think was the most significant move of the 2017 offseason?
0: I think it was the, the Chris Paul trade. You know, I, I was in the middle of teaching a class when that happened, and my, my students were talking about it, and I was like, wait, what, what happened? <laughs> because I'm sitting there. I was literally scheduled to write a piece that week on kind of, um, you know, what would the Spurs look like if they signed Chris Paul? And so that happening... And I, obviously took that right off the table from the jump. Uh, I, I think the Spurs would be unbelievable if they had Chris Paul. Um, and, you know, a real challenge to Golden State, who obviously for a half game, three quarters of a game, had their hands full with the Spurs uh, before hurt. And so I thought that that was kind of a massive move because all of a sudden it takes the Spurs' top free agency option away and off the table. It gives the Rockets a great player. And, it, you know, we saw the way the Rockets' season ended. Where James Harden just looked completely dead, you know, and out of batteries or whatever you want to call it. Um, but it also raised a lot of questions. Like, does this help James Harden? You know, obviously from a fatigue standpoint, I'm sure it does. But he's also coming off an NBA caliber season or MVP caliber season. You know, where he's had two or three seasons like this now. And does it help him or hurt him to not have the ball in his hands quite as much? We saw not that they're even on the same field at all, but Jeremy Lin. You know, and the fact that that didn't work out great for those two guys where they needed to share the ball and really didn't seem to want to. Um, And so I thought the Chris Paul move was huge. You know, I think a perfect world they can compete with Golden State. I don't think they win. Um, Like, that matchup, I really do like the Rockets as a team. You know, they've gotten a couple wing defenders um, this year that I think would really help them. Uh, P.J. Tucker, I think they got... Mbamute uh, on the team as well this summer. They do lose Beverly. They do lose some other parts there, but I, I mean, it's hard not to like that team and the way that it's built. It's just a question now of do they get Carmelo? And if so, uh, does that work out for them? Do they play him mostly at the four? I would assume they would. And, um, and, and basically, how does that, that one two punch work with Paul and James Harden? And, and can they coexist? And not just coexist, but can they really gel together? and take that team to the next level. But I think by far that was the biggest move that I saw this summer.
1: What do you think the odds are that those guys are going to work out together? I mean, it's interesting seeing Chris Paul not wind up signing with somebody this summer, but forcing, or I don't want to say forcing, but getting himself traded to Houston from the Clippers. He forced that. You could <laughs> say that. He forced it for sure. All right. Forcing forcing a trade to to Houston. I mean, we don't know if this is going to last more than a year. What are you expecting to see out of those two guys this year besides, you know, them both wanting to win and obviously times of probably confusion of them trying to figure out who's going to handle the ball in big situations?
0: No, for sure. That That's kind of what I see. I mean, that, that's going to take a while. Neither one of them is used to having to, you know, really do that dance at this point of having to share the offense with someone else. I mean, to some extent, we saw it with Harden and Dwight, but that's always different uh, uh, uh a point guard or a guard sharing the ball with a big man that's something that every team generally has to deal with having two point guards though i just i'm not sure that works out as well as they're hoping it does and i mean maybe it doesn't have to uh you know if they both play um you know 90 percent as well as they can as opposed to 100 percent and having two guys that can do that at that level um you know maybe it works out i mean but it's a it's an offense that You know, I know Harden handles the ball a lot. I know Harden goes one-on-one a lot. Um, But you add Paul into the mix there, and you add Mello into the mix there potentially. Uh, Looking at the numbers on it, I think Paul was 11th in the league in ISO frequency, and the other two guys were in the top 10. And so, you know, it makes me wonder a little bit, does the offense become a team that is kind of more up-tempo, that likes to run, that likes to spread the floor? Um, you know, even if they play that style, do they still get a ton of open shots? They got more open shots than any team in the league. Um, you assume that that would stretch teams out even more, um, uh, because you've got another perimeter shooter out there in Paul. Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't know what to think. I mean, I, I, I think we probably spend too much time talking about the Paul acquisition is, you know, you can kind of understand why, but I do think that they got so much better on the wings defensively, um, that, that. That is something to watch. They didn't really have enough players to defend on the wing. A team like the Warriors, at least not well. And now I think they might. You know, they have a Ariza there as well. Um, makes me wonder how Carmelo would fit in a situation like that defensively, unless he's playing before. But they, they, they definitely loaded up on some horses this summer. And uh, they're, they're going to be interesting to watch. I'm not sure anybody really knows what to make of exactly all the changes they made.
1: Sure, th- those are really good points, and it's important to bring up Trevor Ariza, who I think has kind of been one of the bigger holdups in, in this Melo trade happening because the Rockets don't want to move him. I don't know that Melo fits that team better than Ariza does. I honestly don't know that Melo fits that team better than Ryan Anderson does, but you know, let, let them work on that. Whatever they want to do, I get it. I, I agree with your assessment, though, that they really beefed up on the wings, adding Bamute, who's one of the more underrated players in the league, not even just defensively. I mean, he's not a guy that requires the ball offensively they are going to be a lot of fun to watch and i hope that they can challenge golden state just for just for interesting nba storylines i mean obviously it'll be interesting to see what the thunder could do with the westbrook paul george pairing both minnesota and denver have made you know big strides this offseason too and the spurs are always going to be there so the west is going to be a lot of fun as long as golden state doesn't just run away with things i kind of want to turn our attention to the east though The biggest move that we saw besides Gordon Hayward coming to Boston was Kyrie Irving being traded to Boston, which balances, you know, it potentially shifts the balance of power, taking Kyrie off of Cleveland and putting him on the team that actually won the conference last season in the regular season. Do you see this trade shifting that balance of power? Do you think Boston is now, you know, I don't want to say head and shoulders, but the favorite in the East over Cleveland this year?
0: Record-wise, yeah, but I don't know that it changes the dynamic of who wins. The East ultimately I mean I I don't I mean it's gonna sound like I'm taking a knock at Kyrie But I don't I don't know that he fundamentally changes the argument of who's better there. I mean if it becomes mostly a matchup between him and You know Gordon Hayward and and Horford and obviously those young guys there We'll see how they contribute Jalen Brown and Tatum, but I don't I don't know that I see them as being better You know, I think that they also gave up a couple of players who I really liked. you know that I thought made that defense better Maybe not always statistically, you know, in terms of Avery Bradley and Jay Crowder, but, you know, Crowder fits Cleveland really well as a guy that can shoot. Did have a really, really good shooting season last year that he might not replicate, but he's a guy that can shoot and a guy that can defend and can help defend against a team like Golden State. Um, And, you know, LeBron is still there. And LeBron, you know, last year didn't even look close, that matchup. Um, If Isaiah Thomas isn't healthy and, you know, you've got a big gap there and you're relying on Rose to try to get you to the finals along with LeBron, then maybe. But um, if Isaiah's healthy enough to be ready by the time, you know, midway through the season, two-thirds of the way through the season, then healthy into the playoffs, along with LeBron, along with, uh, you know, Tristan Thompson still on the boards, the way he killed Boston on the boards, because he didn't really have those struggles until the finals, if you remember all that. So, you know, and, and all the shooters they have. You know, Zach Lowe wrote a great piece about Kevin Love and the fact that we tend to forget that he's there. Um, he can probably take on more of a scoring load as well. So I, I still like Cleveland. Ultimately, you know, when it comes down to who's going to get to the final, but maybe maybe it closes again. You know, if they a five, six, seven game lead on Cleveland maybe it forces us to rethink this. But I do think that that Boston team is so different that we really don't know what to expect. They're only bringing back four guys from that team, um, and you know, a lot of them are younger players. And so we'll, we'll see what to make of that. But I, I still really like Cleveland, and it's. You know, I'm I'm just not willing to bet against LeBron uh, until I see someone knock him down, knock him off, and so we'll we'll see. But I don't I don't think Boston's there yet, uh, and I don't know that there was realistically a way for them to get there unless they'd maybe added, um, you know, maybe if they'd added Jimmy Butler and a Paul George, or you know, Jimmy Butler and a Gordon Hayward, or something like that. But going out and basically swapping Kyrie. A younger version and a better, a you know, slightly better version of Isaiah Thomas and getting a guy like uh Gordon Hayward. They had to give up someone to get that. So it's kind of like an even trade and getting Gordon Hayward. And I don't think that really makes them better, especially when you factor in Avery Bradley, one of my favorite players in the league, and Jay Crowder and you know, the other things that they give up and the pick, which is a future sort of consideration. But I'm not sure that they're so much better to where I would put them in front of Cleveland in terms of the favorites to make it out of eight.
1: Yeah, those are all really great points. I mean, this is such a different Boston team that we're going to see. It's it's not the core that, that had developed under Brad Stevens that was, you know, kind of piece by piece adding big guys to it. They kind of blew everything up, and they're going to be relying a lot on Marcus Smart to be taking a leap, on Jalen Brown to take a leap, on Jason Tatum to be NBA ready and to be able to score in playoff games. I mean, you look on the other side, and sure, you're worried about Derrick Rose's health. You're worried about Isaiah Thomas's health. I can't believe I mentioned Derrick Rose over Isaiah Thomas I was thinking about the health thing, but I mean, if you if you need Derrick Rose to play big minutes, I think we've kind of seen over the last few years, he's not that effective player. Sure, good scoring option off the bench if that's going to be his role, but I, I'm with you. I can't bet against a guy who's gotten to the finals seven straight years. I'm really looking forward to narrative LeBron here. I really hope he's just like coming out and winning another MVP this season. That'd be a lot of fun to watch. Uh, It's always fun when there's additional reasons for LeBron to be just a maniac, and I think this is going to be one of those years that we see it. Staying in the East, though, I mean, we're talking about Boston, we're talking about Cleveland. Last year, I think Washington and Toronto were, were also pretty close to those teams, at least in terms of the regular season. Is there a sleeper team that you think can crack into the top of the East this year, kind of with all the movement that we've seen?
0: Uh, when you talk about sleeper team, I mean, it, it depends on how you define it. Uh, if that means like a team that didn't make the playoffs or just squeaked in last year, Sure. I think. I, I mean, I think the team most likely to do that. Um, I'm still not in love with them, but I, I didn't think they were as far off. They had a really long skid last year, too. Charlotte, I think, is the team. I mean, they have Kemba. Um, it's a team where, you know, I think McTomb was hurt a little bit last year. Zeller was out for a lot of time last year. It was a team that had made the playoffs the year before this looked out. And really, when you look at, you know, maybe I'm going to throw an advanced out there, but Bagaree and basically when you look at their plus-minus differential and just how much they won their games by and lost their games by. They should have had six or seven more wins than they did last year. Uh, they should have had a winning record last year. I think they finished with 36 wins. They were closer to like a 42 or 43-win team in terms of their point differential over the season. And so they weren't that bad a team, but they hit some really rough patches there. Offensively, they struggled. Uh, so I think potentially they could they could get back to the playoffs. I don't know that I see them finishing top half of the east, um, you know, where they're, you know, top four seed or anything like that, or top half of the teams that make the playoffs. But I could see them getting back into that mix. And then if we're going to talk about a team that does jump into the top four seed, um, you know, I I guess this one feels almost like cheating, but I would say Milwaukee. Milwaukee, I think, was a sixth seed last year. I could very easily see them getting top four, maybe even top three if, you know, Giannis continues to improve. Uh, If Jabari comes back and can give them something once he's back and healthy. Um, having a full year of Middleton there, having Brockton uh, as a second-year player after he's learned a little bit about how to play and then coming off a Rookie of the Year season, uh, Thon Maker, you know, being a part of their rotation and getting more minutes and kind of developing a little bit more. So I could very easily see that team taking a step forward. Um, You know, they had some really nasty rough patches last year defensively, and so, you know, that team, if it gets a little bit more experienced and a little bit more developed, I could see them making – a leap, Maybe not a huge one, but they wouldn't have to make a huge one to get into the top four of, of the East either.
1: Yeah, they're the team that I had in mind when I asked the question, so thank you for saying them and validating me. I mean, beyond Giannis, I think Chris Middleton's one of the more underappreciated guys. Jabari just can't stay healthy, but he looks like just this offensive factor who could score in so many different ways. Last year he was shooting the 3-2, which I mean, I don't think people expected for him. Good to see him add that to his arsenal, still being so young. It just it comes down to health, and a lot of their guys taking next steps. I really like Brogdon. I really like Maker and what we saw out of him in the playoffs. So I'm pretty intrigued by them. Looking around the league, is there a team that we're not really talking about that you're intrigued by entering the season? I mean, this doesn't have to be a sleeper. Again, this, this could be Denver. This could be Minnesota. Who's that one team that you don't think we're talking about enough a month away from the season starting?
0: Yeah, I'd probably go with Denver. I mean, I, I like that team. Millsap will do a lot to help that team, I think. In particular, um, I think more people—they're going to be on TV more. I think more people will see Jokic, which will be fun. You um, know, I, I do like them, and I think that they—they'll um, finally kind of move away from uh, Gallinari, who I think is a good player but can't stay healthy. Um, I'm a little bit surprised by how impressed people were by the fact that the Clippers—you know—a lot of people, you saw a lot of people saying that the Clippers had a pretty decent summer despite losing Chris Paul. And I mean, it depends on how you define that. Anytime you lose a superstar, um, you're going to take a hit. And, you know, the sum of the parts might not really equal that one part, you know, because if you don't have a guy like Chris Paul, it's going to be hard to compete. Um, But I I honestly think Gallinari for as much fun as he is to watch. um, I think it was kind of a drag on the nuggets after a while, having a guy that you don't know if he's going to be in the lineup, a guy that almost every year you can mark down for missing 20 games. And so, Um, having Millsap kind of fill in the gap there, I think will be great. I think seeing those young guys there, Gary Harris is a really, really good young player that I'm excited to watch. Uh, what is this year three or four for him? Um, so I really like them. Uh, you know, in a team that I think we actually talk about too much, I think Minnesota is kind of being overrated just a little, I know they get Jimmy Butler. I know they had some names that they got this summer. They got Jamal Crawford um i know you got jeff teague i i really worry a little bit about the idea that they might have too many scores on this team uh you can never have enough scoring but when you have that much scoring you need people that can facilitate teague can run an offense we saw him run that that 60 win atlanta team but i just worry that like when you have teague there who you know has developed into a no very good scorer himself uh crawford um you know, they do have guys that don't need the ball as much. They've got Taj Gibson, and you already had Gorgie Zhang there. Um, but when you have – think about it. You've now got Teague, Jimmy Butler, Andrew Wiggins, and you've got Carl Anthony Towns, and then you've got Crawford coming off the bench. Like, you've just got so many guys that all kind of are looking for their own shot a lot of the time. Um, and you don't have that many guys that are just going to clamp down and say, I'm going to play defense here. And Butler does that. Um and, you know, probably Anthony Towns, I think, will develop a no much better defender over time. We saw him do it with Kentucky. He's still a young player. Um, but I would have loved George Hill on this team. You know, frankly, I would love to see Ricky Rubio on this team. Uh, and I just think that you, when you have that many guys that can all score, you need someone that can say, I don't need to score. I'll, I'll just set everybody else up. And I think that Hill and Rubio are, are better examples of that. Um, I think they were interested in Hill, and Hill... You know, when you talk around the league, it kind of sounds like Hill was more interested in or was kind of afraid of the idea of Thibodeau's reputation, Uh, mostly, I think, among fans. I don't think players normally worry about this as much, but the idea that uh, whether he would wear down playing for Thibodeau and the fact that he still wants, you know, one more big contract if he can get it, he'll be a little bit older at that point, George Hill, but, you know, with the the way the money looks in the NBA right now, that you don't want to play yourself out of the idea of being able to get money down the line. So, but I think he would have been a great fit with this team, but I, I think people are a little high on the Timberwolves, especially in a first season with all these guys playing together. Um, I tend to think that they'll finish under 50 wins, even though a lot of people think they'll finish above that.
1: No, those are really some great points. I agree with you. I didn't understand the Jeff Teague signing just in terms of the rest of the roster construction and George Hill did seem like the right guy. I mean, I don't know if it's an age thing where Teague might be a little bit younger, I I don't even know off the top of my head. I think he is. Chris, that's all just great NBA stuff. I I'm really getting pumped up for the season. I hope our listeners are getting pumped from the season. It's been so much football that you know we're just we're ready for the NBA to go. This is going to be a real exciting season, I think. But one of the other reasons I really wanted to get you on the show is because you know you and I go back and forth on Twitter every now and then, not just about basketball but about kind of what it's like writing, and that's obviously not for me to put myself in in your stratosphere as a writer. I mean, you're so accomplished, and you've done so many great things. I think you bring such a good perspective to writing, too. So I kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about your journey, your career. You know, when Joe and I did this podcast, we really liked to discuss media and writing and the state of journalism, and you're one of those people who I really look up to and wanted to ask a few questions to. So to get it started, what was it like starting your writing career in New York City? Uh,
0: it was, it was a much different mindset that I took in because I was an intern when I got there. I uh, I, I just graduated from college. I'd gotten an internship in the middle uh, of my senior year uh, that I was offered by the journal, by the Wall Street Journal, and then took it. But it was covering law, and so it was much different. At the time, I kind of got whatever they had left as the interns, uh, as far as the interns went, and so I, you know, I didn't know anything about law. I definitely wasn't, you know, coming from law school. And then just kind of as a cursory question, I asked the the person who hired me, the law bureau chief, what, you know, what fraction percentage of the writers you have in your, in your group have law degrees? And I was figuring, you know, most journalists don't get law degrees. It's, it's normally <laughs> not like a requirement. She was like, it's probably about half. And so that scared the hell out of me too because I was like, oh, okay. So not only – do I not really know that much about law? You know, a lot of the people that work in her group have law degrees. And so I think that was kind of a good uh, bar to kind of set for me, because I think one of the things you have to do as a journalist is you have to kind of become an expert on things really quickly, even if you don't understand them well. And so whether it's reading up on things, whether it's meeting with people, talking with people to get a better understanding so that you can talk the same language as as the folks that you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And, The NBA worked the same way. I spent, you know, I I covered crime and law and politics for two years at the Journal, switched over to sports at a certain point and covered the Jets. I really didn't love that that much. Um, It was difficult. Uh, It was much different sort of fan base that you're writing for. And I think there's less interest from fans in terms of, like, the nuance that goes into football. Um, I, I think, you know, no matter how well you write or what you write about, a lot of times fans are only interested in, like, how much of it was the quarterback's fault, or how much of it do we have to thank the quarterback for? And so all the other position groups and all the other players kind of become irrelevant. And when you're studying all of them, it, it feels kind of silly to kind of boil it down to just the one or two players that fans can, you know, say, oh, I remember this play that this guy made when there was, you know, a set of blocks that helped bring that guy free or what have you. So that it, it was kind of a godsend to go over to the Knicks beat. Uh, I remember not wanting to because. I felt like football was being taken away from me. I, I was convinced I liked writing about football at the time, but a few weeks into the Knicks speed, I kind of felt um, at ease with it. And, you know, I felt like I was asking different sorts of questions and deeper penetrating questions. than what I was asking on the jet speed, I felt like fans kind of took to my writing right away. Um, you know, and, and, the way I was doing it, I was studying up on everything. I was watching the games twice um, so that I could, you know, have clear takeaways on what they were doing I was, you know, I was interviewing the players and looking at certain things and looking for certain things. Uh, the team was good, and so there was a real buzz around the team that first year that I wrote about them in 2012. Um, they were really interesting. They're really old. They had you know people that had won championships on that team. A relatively new coach that was there, Carmelo, really in scoring. Um, that that year was so much. Than I, um kind of catapulted me a little bit in terms of confidence, in terms of um, exposure and visibility. It it was just kind of what I needed at that time because prior to that, you know, I I felt like on the jet speed, I'd actually had a boss tell me, look, like if you don't think you can handle this or cut this, then we'll just move you back to the news section. And so I I had a lot of pressure on myself and I was kind of doubting myself as to whether it's something I could do or do well enough. And, you know, it felt like there was just this resounding yes that I was getting from fans, from my editors, from my family, from everybody, all at the same time once I moved over to the Knicks beat. So it it really was literally a godsend for me to be able to cover that team at that time. A lot of fun. Um, You know, I learned a ton in in those four or five years that I was on the Knicks beat.
1: For sure. And like I said, you know, you're one of my favorite writers covering the team. We spoke about Ian Begley before. Yeah, dude, thank you. You do a great job. Uh, We talked about Ian Begley being, you know, such a good person who covers the Knicks also. The Knicks beat is pretty popular, though, because there's so many writers that are on the beat, and I mean, it's not just, you know, writers for Paper A, Paper B. It's Frank Isola who's on Around the Horn, and it's Mark Berman who is always making fun of. I mean, there's a handful of writers that cover this team that people can, you know, name off the top of their head. What was it like being the young guy on the beat for the Knicks? I, I didn't really like it at first. Uh, you know, they're... I think a lot of those
0: guys have been on the beat for a while anyway. And so I was very much kind of a new kid on the block and I was literally a kid. I'm, I'm not sure how old Ian is. We're in the same ballpark. He might be three, four years, five years old or something like that. But, um, but generally speaking, everybody else has been covering the league for probably, you know, since at least since I got out of college, but probably even before that, no, like LA Zone had covered the kid era next. Um, and so I, I was very young compared to most of the other people on the beat, and it wasn't just that, but I think I was kind of the only guy who covered them kind of the way I did, where I used a lot of numbers and a lot of analytics, and you know, to some extent, it was very clear I was watching the games carefully and intently. But I, I brought a different stuff, asked differently. Sola would kind of rip the idea of asking long questions and, you know, anyone listening to this podcast probably knows I'm long-winded. Um, but, you know, so that, some of that was uncomfortable because I also didn't really feel like it was coming from, like, I didn't know them well enough to really feel like it was all in good fun necessarily. Um, I, like, I remember being really bad at shape for a while and it probably like was not stuff that was that big a deal, but like it's a couple of them didn't follow me on twitter and so like it just was kind of like well we don't even follow each other on twitter so it's not it didn't always feel like it was coming from the most welcoming place and it kind of felt like if and when we did joke with each other that if i made a joke um about someone or something that it like wasn't as welcome as someone else's joke and so to me i didn't really feel like we all even if we could like laugh and joke with each other i kind of felt like it wasn't reciprocated the same way. Like I didn't feel like we were in a comfortable enough place to do that. And I do feel like there was some discomfort, whether it was that people felt like I was really into hearing my own voice or really, you know, that thought was better than people. I never really felt that way. I've always, I think we had a a, a, a Wall Street Journal that has a very different audience than someone that writes for a tabloid. And so um, even down to like the tabloid guys didn't like it when I would ask questions um like an important question after a game at, on a given night because if i you know let's say carmelo says something really important if he says it the night of like after a game he's saying that almost at 11 o'clock and you know if it makes the paper that night or if it's in my paper any other paper the next day um it means that it's kind of the shelf life you know the the back pages have already gone in a lot of cases for the tabloids. Like they've already kind of figured out what their lead stories are. And so in my case, the Wall Street Journal is really different. Our deadlines were really, really early because they were tied to the stock market. Stock market closes at 4.30. And so our print deadlines are already over. So we really can't get anything into the physical newspaper late at night. And so if I asked a question, I might be asking it for my next day's story or whatever I'm thinking about for writing the next day. But the tabloid guys would get mad because they were like, you – You literally can't make use of whatever he's saying tonight. You can't put it in your physical newspaper, whereas, like, my editors, if you do write something the next day, my editors are going to wonder why I didn't go with that or why I didn't have that or why we weren't able to make use of it. Um, It's going to force me to put it in a much smaller um, spot in, in terms of placement and where it goes in the tabloids. Because we've already kind of figured out what our lead story is for the back page, and so even little stuff like that would kind of get under people's skin. And um, so it took a while, I think, for not everybody. Like Beth and I have been friends ever since I was on that beat, and I think even maybe before that, because we've covered football stuff at times when I was on the Jets, and he'd show up and cover Jets stuff too. Um, and so he and I have hung out on our own and talked on our own and stuff like that. And he's like even cooler. Like if someone where a lot of other people kind of, I I wouldn't say they felt threatened by me, but like weren't comfortable with me or, you know, necessarily like friendly with me, Begley and I would hang out and Begley was like gracious enough sometimes to be like, if there's ever anything I can help you with, like, let me know. And actually a couple of times asked like, or could you show me how you do some of the things you do in terms of numbers or analytics? Because I really like the way you write. And that's kind of, I know that's like the wave of what's happening right now. I do it too. He's like, if you don't mind. And of course I didn't mind. So, Zebly and I've been really good friends, and you know we talk on a personal level, and it feels comfortable now being coworkers with him as opposed to having to compete with him because I've always felt more friendly with him. But, uh, but yeah, there there were some awkward moments on the beat. I kind of feel like it faded more so after the second year I was there. Um, but I'm friendly with all those guys now, and I think they're all pretty good guys. And you know, um, Steve, Al, Frank, even like Frank is someone that I feel like we had like a rocky sort of relationship with for a while, just because he is so sarcastic and it's kind of hard to get his tone if you're not around him all the time. But I I genuinely think all those guys are good guys and, um, have spent time with them or talked with them more since I've gotten off the beat. And it's, uh, and it's cool to see them. Like that's one of the things I look forward to now when I cover a Nick game, uh, whether they're traveling and I, you know, I meet them on the road or something. Those are all good guys
1: that That's really cool, and I thought one of the important things you mentioned is you took a different approach to covering the team and when I talk about you know you being one of my favorite writers, it's because you took that approach where it's new york it's the Knicks it's easy to write you know dysfunction pieces or Carmelo is selfish pieces or any kind of narrative driven pieces and you know you were really focused on the analytics, what was happening on the court, and with that said, I mean you're telling it how it is, and there's so much response to everything that's written covered of. You know, there's media bias, the media is the reason that the team stinks, you guys don't want them to be good, you know, this and that. And I know you covered them through a decent stretch for a little, but it wasn't as good in the end. What I want to ask you is, was it more difficult doing your job and working with the Knicks organization or having to interact with fans who kind of wanted that positive coverage, even when it wasn't exactly deserved for the team? Um. So was
0: it more difficult dealing with the fans or the organization which was easier, which was tougher. Yeah.
1: I mean the Knicks have this reputation um, as an organization of not exactly being hmm, the most transparent, you know, the the <laughs> easiest to work with. We we could just leave it there. Sure. <laughs> so
0: I, I think that kind of goes back to what I was saying before. I think early on it's actually really like early on I think fans really took to my writing early because they were so used to what I was just saying about like the tabloids and you know, there's always like a pessimism that kind of goes along with Nick fan, Nick reporters. You know, I think there's a pessimism that goes along with covering the team because they've been bad forever. The ownership has changed or it hasn't changed. And so like the expectation is always like anything that can go wrong, will go wrong. Um, So when I covered them, they were good that first year. And so first of all, like tone wise, I really didn't have to beat up on them. My first story, literally my first story about them, um, I had some fans on my back. The story got a lot of attention because I basically wrote a story, kind of laying out statistically that they were the oldest team of all time. (laughs) Um, And you know, if you weight the average of the players' ages, then no, they weren't. I think one of the Jazz teams was, but they were. You know, they had gone from having Jeremy Lin and a bunch of young guys on that team to being capped out, basically, and having to go get guys on. Bargain basement sorts of prices, so they get Jason Kidd, um, they get Rashid Wallace out of retirement. They go get Pablo Prigioni from overseas. You know, they have
1: all these Marcus guys Marcus Canby, Kenyon show. Martin comes on that team. I mean, they or they were Thomas, right, uh, such an old team, and they
0: and basically they basically had a bunch of like young stars, Carmelo, uh, Tyson Amari, and then a bunch of other guys, Raymond Felton. Um, a bunch of other guys that are kind of role players, Novak, and then those old guys. And so I basically said they overnight became the oldest team in NBA history. They went from being like a younger than average team to the oldest team in history. And so I basically was raising questions in that story of whether that would work long-term, like that they might be okay as a team, but that they might break down over the course of the season because of how old they were. And I had people call me crazy um, because, you know, like why would they, why would they break down like they're, Best players are all their young guys, and you know all those guys are under the age of thirty. But what ended up happening is that you know as and Kurt and Camby and all those guys were so banged up, it put more pressure. And Amari, you remember that was the year that he missed the beginning of the season. Mello was forced to play the four, and then Woodson just kind of kept that lineup as is. In doing that, um, the guys that were the youngest actually ended up bearing way more responsibility in terms of minutes. And so they kind of all broke down as the season went on. Tyson had the neck problem. Um, Amari, you know, never really recovered. And they tried to throw him in at the end of the playoffs. He was awful, and they had to pull him off the court. Carmelo had the shoulder issue um, and, you know, had to wear that that sleeve or whatever it was for his shoulder. Uh, and so those young guys ended up bearing way too many minutes as well. Everybody was kind of banged up. Kid was Kid completely, uh, like, exhausted by the end of the year. Had nothing left. Missed. Whatever it was, seventeen, eighteen shots in a row. So anyway, right. the whole point of what I'm saying there is that the organization, uh, those first two years that covered the team, I think they were actually pretty. They kind of needled me a lot, even like even over tweets and little things, like you know, basically saying like that. They would kind of question what I was writing or the tone that I would take, um, just in terms of like if I phrased something wrong. And some things were legitimately fair. Like I, one time, I think I took down the team's like lineups or objectives on their whiteboard in the locker room. And I did, and I tweeted out what some of those objectives were and they're like, you can't do that. Like, if you're going to do that, then we'll just close the locker room access off. And I didn't like, that was literally a rule. I didn't know something. I probably should have known, but didn't know. So that's something small, but then there were other things like where, um, you know, if I wrote something, I think I wrote stories about like the nature of Carmelo's injuries and whether or not the Knicks were doing the right thing by not getting His knee examined, you know, Carmelo had this thing where he wouldn't get MRIs taken, where he would have x-rays done, but not MRIs, which don't really show you, like, if there's stuff muscularly wrong, or, like, wrong with the muscles, and if there's a tear, like, stuff you can't really see, and it was kind of all because Carmelo was afraid of needles, and Carmelo didn't like the idea of surgery, and so I basically wrote about whether the Knicks were kind of risking things by not getting these things checked out, you know, even though Carmelo didn't want them to be checked out, and so... Whenever I wrote about the medical staff, I would get pushback on that. Um, you know, things here and there, like I would hear from agents or the team or, you know, people with the team, uh, but that was never too bad. I, I think I want to say, like, after two years, they kind of eased up. Like, I knew what I was doing at that point. I think they saw I was being very, very fair, especially compared to the rest of the beat. And, you know, like I wasn't playing things up just to play them up. I wasn't trying to embarrass the team. Um, I was always reaching out to them to get, at least giving them a chance to respond, which I think was a little different than some of the other beat writers as well. Um, From the fans, I think they very quickly took my writing. I don't think they liked that initial story about the, you know, the age of the team or anything like that. Uh, But I think that, you know, that season kind of proved to be correct in terms of that sort of hypothesis and maybe them being a little bit too old or too fragile. Um, And then I want to say, like, even the the third year I covered them when they went 17 and 65, I tried to take a different route. It would have been really easy to beat up on them uh, that year because they were expected to be decent. They had Derek Fisher there for the first year. Phil, his first full year as the the president of the team. And after they just were horrible, I think they're on pace to win 10 games or five and 36 at one point. I I told my editor and said, look, I'm not going to cover this team every day anymore in the same fashion because there's no point. Like they're, a horrible team Carmelo's going to have knee surgery at this point all anyone cares about is their draft pick and where their draft pick is going to land so just send me like let me go on the road and basically scout these players these college players and i'll do write-ups i'll do really lengthy write-ups on you know their skills their weaknesses strengths uh you know and instead of looking at just how they fit the nba and how they would fit the nba let me do scouting reports on how they would fit the knicks specifically and i'll go watch them play a couple times. I'll watch all their games back on video and kind of scout them on video. I'll talk to their coach. I'll talk to the players. I'll look at their advanced statistics and I'll, you know, and I'll do it all within the framework of how that fits with Carmelo and Jose Calderon and, and Amari and guys like that. And so doing that, I thought was actually really, really cool. Um, and people saw the effort I was putting into that. It's probably easily putting a hundred hours of work, And at one point, twenty-one out of twenty-two days on the road uh, in hotels, you know, scouting these guys all over the country. And I think it came out well. Now, the thing that sucked about it was that none of it ended up being useful once they picked Porzingis, who was a guy that wasn't (laughs) playing locally or in the states. But you know, I definitely I was constantly trying to find new ways to write about them or new ways to inform the fan base. So more often than not, I always got really positive feedback from the players and, and from the the fans and from almost everybody, because they could at least see the work and the effort that went into it. Um, I think a lot of times when you read my stories, I'd have quotes that were from, you know, that were just from the player to me, not necessarily part of a bigger group that they're talking to. And the player's responses were normally really easygoing or kind of reflective. And so, you know, players don't do that with you unless you're asking them something that's different or unless they trust you or both. And especially with Carmelo, I kind of built up a really good rapport with him. Um, to where, you know, I could have a conversation about him learning how to play chess or, you know, about uh, the idea of what it's like to have a kid and uh, your kid being sick and you getting sick because you want to play and take care of your kid when he's around and Tyson and the same thing with that, you know, like all sorts of kind of off-the-beaten-path stories. Um, Even though I was kind of a writer known more for analytics, people saw that I was trying to kind of constantly... Push boundaries in terms of going outside my comfort zone, which was numbers, to, to write about stuff that I didn't understand as well, or that I thought people would respond well to, um, why Jose Calderon shoots free throws on technicals instead of Carmelo and stuff like that. People seem to appreciate me asking questions that other people might not be as quick to ask.
1: You being so adaptable was great. I remember that season, and it's just being brutal. I mean, you can't read game recaps of a team that just doesn't win games. It's not... It's not anything worth reading. It was great when you started going on the road and doing the scouting. I remember the D'Angelo Russell piece, and I was wondering how going to Ohio State treated you, but you must have got through it. It it was all good stuff. Um, You know, I'm sure it's really difficult to do this, but if you had to boil everything down into one important lesson that you took away from the Knicks beat, what what would that be? Probably that you you can't, that you need to know how to. Balance
0: those two things. It's really, you know, it's really easy to write about a team that constantly does one thing. You know, if they constantly lose, you know, to kind of be cynical and skeptical of everything. But you know, I had the reverse experience where they won unexpectedly, and so everything was kind of about. Um, you know, I, I've constantly felt like it'd be easier to cover a team like the Knicks, who do both. That they, you know, they have a good season here. They have good moments. You know, they had. Two out of the last three years, they've actually had moments where they, uh, well, actually, the last two years, they've had moments where they're at or above 500 for the first part of the season and then go into a tailspin and miss the playoffs. And so I've always thought that it's good to know how to write about both things. Uh, I've always thought it would be the hardest thing to write about a team like the Spurs, where they're really, really good all the time and there's never any drama there. So, like, how do you, like, what's new about their situation? And obviously, Kawhi had a huge breakout season, but like short of that, what's, what is there new to say about this team other than just kind of verbatim reporting out what they're saying? And so I think what you're saying, being adaptable and, you know, constantly trying to find new questions to ask and, you know, and spending the time to try to explore what's new about the team. What can I say that's different, that's informing fans. Um, And whenever I had that question in my head, how can i do that it always kind of went back to watching more games watching more film spending time asking questions differently or asking different questions um you know looking at what other teams are doing and where the knicks are falling short looking where the knicks are, are excelling you know looking pretty carefully at like what the front office is doing and whether you know looking at it you know they it's easy to knock the whole front office but they've drafted pretty well um you know i i, I mentioned that stat all the time about the idea that they have had more first-team all-rookie players than any team in the league over the last five or six years, um, but that they kind of hit a standstill with development after that. And so they, they have done things well for a while in terms of scouting. Even go back to Isaiah, he was great at drafting players, but then the fit wasn't right with a lot of these guys on the roster. And so just being able to identify, you know, it, it's really easy to say that they are just these huge screw-ups that never do anything right, but they actually get plenty right. It's just that, you know, not everything is right and that they're really, really wrong in certain things. But it's still really important. Like what I've learned, I think, is that you can't just bash things wholeheartedly, you know, or completely without giving credit where it's due. Because I think that does a couple things. One, it, it makes people reluctant to want to speak with you because you're kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and you're, you're not showing enough respect for people that actually were getting it right. And people have asked me this question before. Chris, like, would you want to work for a team if you've been approached by teams before? I don't think I would ever want to because I, I think it would be too hard to distinguish what I was doing well versus what the organization was doing well or doing bad. And so you could easily lose your job because, you know, the general manager's been there for a while and then the general manager puts together a bad team or that the team just underperforms, and then you're kind of blamed for that as a whole because you were part of the organization. And I don't think that's fair. Um, and that's not fair. You know, it's part of, I've thought about that over the last couple of years and how I don't know exactly what every single person is doing. I can outline that the scouting team there has done pretty well for the most part, but that they've kind of swung and missed on some of their bigger trades and their bigger free agent acquisitions. And so you can say that fairly, but they've done an excellent job in terms of scouting internationally. I think, I think for the most part, they've done really well just in drafting in general the last 10, 15 years. Um, you know, and I think to some extent, you know, they've tried. They they finally, you know, to Dolan's credit, he went out and finally got someone that he was comfortable handing the reins to. I just think that Phil might have been the wrong choice in hindsight, and that he probably overpaid the hell out of Phil. But the the idea was right, and so I, I just think showing nuance and talking in a nuanced tone, especially in a loud city like New York, I think it gets you so much more credibility, not only with fans. Uh, but with the front office, I heard several times from Phil directly and from other people in that front office that they at least appreciated that I was willing to hear out the other side. And I was willing to reach out to them and ask if they wanted to comment, that I was willing to give them credit where they'd done things well. Uh, I obviously was very willing to you know point out all the things they did wrong, too. But there's a way to do that without just killing them relentlessly all the time. And um, I think that that was appreciated. And I think that's what fans appreciate. It's not going to get you know, the most attention all the time, because I think it's way easier to just be bombastic and to just kill, you know, every single thing that they do. But, um, finding a way to be fair, especially when a team has up moments and down moments, and everything in between. Um, that, that was what I took from that is that there's, you know, the nice guys finish last thing or, you know, horrible guys finish first or what have you in terms of the way they cover the team. I think it's okay to cover them and to do it in a nuanced one.
1: Awesome stuff. Uh, you know, you you had, obviously, as high profile of a beat gig as you could possibly have with the Knicks, and then you got scooped up to the big leagues, I suppose we could say, working with ESPN, working with Five Thirty Eight. I mean, I've seen you on my television a few times, which is awesome. Do you have any crazy stories or even, like, a welcome-to-the-big-leagues moment of, you know, your, your time with ESPN so far? Was there a moment that really sticks out where you were like, oh, wow, I work at ESPN? I
0: mean... I- I probably still
1: need that moment sometimes because it's kind of a blur.
0: Uh, The first national TV appearance I was supposed to make, um, I I was coming downtown. The Knicks had a game, I want to say against Cleveland uh, at home. And so they had said, we want to, you know, they they normally do this. They try to show off their big hires shortly after they make them. And so they, they normally will have them, you know, sports center segment or something and they'll they'll introduce them on camera and kind of, you know, ask them questions about whatever topic is the topic of the day. So this was right after Phil had said, whatever he said about LeBron and that conversation, I think with Jackie McMullen. And so they were asking me my opinion of that because it was the first time they were playing against each other since Phil had said that. And LeBron was saying that he didn't want to talk to Phil and, you know, that he felt like he was disrespected. It's all thing. Um, and so I was headed downtown and I am notoriously late for everything. Um, so, I tell myself I'm going to be on time, you know, for once. I'm going to get there early. I left my apartment probably, you know, like wearing a suit, probably like fifty, forty-five, fifty 45, 50 minutes early to take the subway. I live probably 12 to 15 minutes. From, I lived 15 minutes away from the garden at most on the subway, uh, taking the two, three from Harlem. So, it really didn't take any time to get there. And then I walked down there, and the subway says, um, you know, the electronic signs that tell you how long the subway will be. It just, like, literally the only first and only time I've ever seen this at my stop, it just said out. It didn't even say, like, <laughs> 20 minutes, 21 minutes. It just said out. And I'm like, what the hell does out mean? Like, I need to get downtown. And this is, like, a 9, 10 o'clock hit I'm supposed to do. So it's, like, heart of rush hour getting downtown from Harlem. There's literally no way I'm going to get there from uptown to, to get to the garden um for the pregame hit that the of the early morning hit that i was going to do on sports center so i'm like oh this is just great first national tv appearance <laughs> i'm ever making and you know the train is just like out of service completely so i'm looking at my uber like i i for some reason have like no uh memory or space on my phone so like i delete apps off my phone all the time to make space just to be able to do certain things or be able to take pictures when i otherwise wouldn't have space so i had to like try to download the Uber app again like cut stuff off my phone to make space for it like I'm running super late there are no cabs other than Ubers and so I take an Uber and I'm extremely late um, I, I give them a heads up that I'm going to be a little bit late and um, I think I had the Uber take me to like a separate subway stop so that I could get on from there since it was just my stop that was effective. and I got there like maybe 10 or 15 minutes late even though like I said I had left almost an hour early for something that only takes 15 minutes to get to Um, so I get there late and then I'm told, you know, as I get there, they're like, Oh, like you're stressing. It's like not that big a deal. Like you'd be amazed at how often this happens. Number one, we had someone ready to go anyway, but number two, we told you to get there at that time because a lot of people are late, uh, that they, you're trying to look so good. and sound so good for the first appearance that you look, you kind of overshoot in terms of how much time you think you have end up being late. And so like, we always kind of tell people to be there earlier than they actually need to be. And so you're fine. And I was like, Oh my God. So I was freaking out. Uh, but also like the idea I got there, I think Brian Windhorse was doing a hit first. It, it, it tells you a couple things. One, that you're not the first person to ever have whatever dilemma you're having. It's a good lesson to learn. But two, like the fact that Brian Windhorse was up doing a standup hit, um, that there's so much talent there at ESPN. And there's so many people and so much front facing talent that's on camera that, uh, it, it's kind of what I signed up for that, uh, you know, and I still want to get to that stage where, you know, I'm on TV as much as Brian and respected as Brian is and everything like that, that you just got so many people in front of you. And it's kind of, you know, being at the wall street journal, even though it's a huge paper with a great reputation that it was kind of like a big fish in a small pond sort of thing where, um, you know, there were only one or two NBA writers there, me and one other person and then going to ESPN and they're being like, you know, like I said, this ESPN summit meeting where there's 40 of us in a room and you're sitting there looking at Wolge and Zach Lowe and Brian Windhorst and Tom Haberstroh and everybody else for that matter. And so, um, you know, this idea that if you are late, you know, and just a more as a, um, I guess an example, but if you, if I had been late, if I hadn't been there, if I hadn't shown up at all, you, you know, someone else would have been willing to take my spot there and that you kind of have to be on your P's and Q's all the time because there's just so much talent in ESPN. So... A good lesson for me to learn there uh, obviously I'm, I'm not as late anymore with stuff like that i try to be on time with things but uh, there's just so much talent there and uh, but beyond that i mean being in bristol this past week with everything that was happening with jamel and, and hearing what was happening and hearing about it before a lot of that stuff even became public and the reports even came out about what that day was like and seeing them on campus in, in bristol was was crazy. But ESPN is a crazy place, man. Like there's just so much going on and so influential in terms of what people think and what people hear and how stories come out. And it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's in an interesting place right now because of all this political stuff that, um, that happens, is said, And, and frankly, I mean, probably really hard to stay out of those conversations because of how political everything is in general in sports right now with athletes and their opinions too.
1: Sure. Yeah, it's, it's impossible to avoid. Either way, I mean, we're rooting for you. We know you're going to climb to the top there. And obviously, you're already in that same grouping with the guys who you mentioned with Haberstra and Winhorst and Woj and Zach Lowe. I mean, you're in their ballpark. You're doing it. We're really proud of you watching you do this and grow in front of our own eyes. Before I let you go, if you could offer one piece of advice to aspiring writers, just one, what would it be, my, my best advice for anybody
0: that wants to do this or to write in general would just be to to don't don't settle for having the same stuff that everyone else has you know um, it's not math where there's only one right answer um, you can do stuff different ways and that's what, what I think is so cool about writing and the kind of the industry when you look at how many people have had success you've got Woj and you've got people like that where They break news better than just Benjamin Stein and and guys like Sam Amick is really good at that. And then you've got guys like Zach that, you know, just clearly busts his ass to, you know, he's a killer podcaster. He clearly watches the game as intently as anybody in the league, if not more so. Um, You know, he he writes off the beaten path stories. Anyone remembers that story he did about the Nets and how they almost changed their logo and the name of the team to like the Swamp Monsters or whatever it was. (laughs) and you know stuff like that and it's the, the weird quirky um fat infatuation he has with with court design and uniforms and stuff like that mascots. uh you have that i mean you have the way i write and you know it's there's like no rule you've got bill simmons who you know granted i don't think it's necessarily good to aspire to be that because i just think he is so zany but also really brainy about the the history of the league. I don't think it's easy to do what he does, but you've got so many different models that you can try to follow, and then you know you've got more traditional reporting that you can do that is not easy to do. I think the best ones make that look easy as well. But there, there's all sorts of different ways you can go about this. My best advice would just be: don't settle for being just like everybody else. Find your niche. Find what you think you can do differently, and that's not an easy thing. You know, I. I, I Sitting here in Barnes and Noble the other day, like looking at books on reinvention and kind of how to constantly reinvent yourself so that people can't ever just come to rely on you for just one thing. I, I think in the industry right now, if, if people can pigeonhole you and say this is what you do, I tend to see that as a bad thing because I, I think stuff is constantly changing and it's not safe anymore to just say that you do one thing in, in an environment where you know the industry changes every other. Year in terms of what the focal point is or what they think they might want. So, but you you take the time. I almost feel like that's more worth taking the time to do than really um, studying on just like one style that you want to emulate. Figure out what you can do that would be slightly different than what everybody else does. And if you do it well and if it's something that is, you know, really coveted, like covering the NBA or writing about the NBA, and you can do it differently or, you know, find a way to analyze stuff more deeply than other people, people will notice that um, there's a lot of different ways to kind of get noticed, whether it's writing for a blog. Um, you know, it's tough to do that. It's tough to make a living doing that, but if it's what you love and you, you know, you really get pleasure out of doing that, maybe you're not doing it as a full-time job. Maybe you're just doing it as a side thing, or maybe you're just doing it for fun. But, you know, I, I think push yourself to be different somehow. And, um, you know, I think that was the difference between when I was on the Jets speed versus when I was on the Knicks is that, I spent a whole summer, you know, watching film and studying numbers and, you know, doing even one-on-ones with Carmelo before that season started, where I just wanted to find a way to make my work a little bit different than everybody else. And I feel like that summer really paid off for me because it kind of gave me a sense of how I wanted to cover the league. And so I'm still figuring out exactly what I want to do now. You know, I think it's really easy to get to ESPN and try to comfortable with that but you know not wanting to get stuck the only way you can avoid getting stuck is finding new ways to kind of show off everything you can do and how you can do stuff differently so that's what my advice would be to everybody is just try to find a way to to make your writing a little bit different or your voice a little bit
1: different than everybody else's absolutely great stuff chris i mean this was such a pleasure i've been asking you and i'm so glad that you were able to come on the podcast When I got to take the show over, you're one of the first people I had to hit up just because I have so much respect for you, the way you write, the way you approach writing. And I mean, you're just, you're a great dude. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Before I let you go, do you have any work that you want to plug or any shout outs you want to give?
0: Not really. Um, Nothing. Definitely not in terms of uh, work right now. I mean, the one thing I can, I guess, it's not really plugging anything just yet because it's not there yet and I'm still setting up. Um people that I want to try to reach out to and meet up with. Uh, but a few weeks from now, I think we're, we're almost ironclad at this point where we're going to start uh NBA themed podcast at 538. Um, and it'll, it'll take on a couple different forms. Sometimes it'll be kind of a three man podcast with me, a uh, colleague, Kyle Wagner, and then Neil Payne that I work with at 538. And we'll be doing a, an NBA podcast over there, which should be every week. But then aside from that, um, I'm going to probably hop on the road quite a bit to talk to different people around the league, players, hopefully coaches, owners, executives. Um, and I'm going to hop on the road and I'm going to have sit-downs with them probably closer to an hour each. Um, and just was talking even about setting up times to get out there in October and maybe a little bit after that. So that's, that's probably what I would plug, but there's not even any episodes. I think we did one pilot episode like a week ago or two about the Kyrie trade, but uh, we'll have a lot more and we'll be doing that weekly. And I, I no clue how often I'll be doing the ones where I'm just sitting down with someone one-on-one, but, uh, but I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be challenging for me because I've never done it. So I'll probably have to ask you for some advice uh, in terms of how to approach questions and whatnot, and how to come up with a, a set of questions to even ask um, the people that I'm speaking with. But I'm really excited to do that. People have said for years that they'd want me to, to, try my hand at that, because I've, you know, I've been a guest on so many people's podcasts, but it'll be really cool kind of turning the tables and doing that, but I'm a little nervous about the, um, about the time that it'll take to do that and the research that it'll take to do that. I'm going to be totally scared that I'm going to forget to ask a question or not ask a question the right way, but it'll, it'll be fun once we get around to doing that.
1: For sure. Well, I'm looking forward to that, and uh, I'm always happy to provide any kind of counsel that I could uh, again, if you are not already following Chris, you can find him on Twitter at Herring, that's H-E-R-R-I-N-G, underscore NBA. Catch his writing at five thirty eight and ESPN. Look out for him on Center. I mean, this guy's taking over the NBA world. He's already done it. Chris, one last time, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, man. I really appreciate it, Jared. All right, take care, Chris.